Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, and then Acts chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Chapter 5. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you as we've seen the early church and the foundation that is established upon in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the growth and what they experienced, and we recognize that we need to model ourselves after them. So help us now to listen with attentive hearts and minds. Help us to be encouraged by your spirit. Help us to be convicted where we need to be. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How you doing, folks? You're here. That's something. Great to see you all. Great to see your faces. <clears throat> Some of you uh, that I haven't seen for a while. So, so wonderful to see you as well. Uh, we are going to be at the end of chapter 4 and also at the beginning of chapter 5 in a story about Ananias and Sapphira. What do we make of that story where they did something wrong, apparently, and they got smoked? Like, what do we do with this story? We're going to talk about that today. Have you ever had a conversation or a discussion with someone about our church? And they didn't know that you attended this church. What did they say? I've heard from a few of you that you have had conversations like that. I myself have had maybe a couple of those, a couple, three of those conversations with people just in the town here. And uh, all kinds of things come up. What's the word on the street? Maybe they perceived us to be just too hardcore with all that conservative Bible preaching. That's one that I heard. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Guilty as charged. Another is that our church, oh, that's that church that sponsors all these really cool events like Easter and Christmas. And uh, didn't you guys have like a a big Mormon uh, evangelical conversation in town? We sure did. I'll take that. Maybe they generally are very suspicious, actually, of the church. Because, generally speaking, they're suspicious of all churches. That's fine. Or maybe everyone knows us as the nice church. I was getting my hair cut one time, and a young lady, I told her where I worked, and and, uh, she goes, oh, I think the people there are so nice. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll take that. I'll be nice. Every church, make make no mistake about it, Every church has a reputation, good, bad, or somewhere in between. And before us today is a passage that tells us why the church in Acts chapter 5 at this time was so esteemed. They were an esteemed church. They were held in high regard by the community. How do we do that? I want to share with you today what the marks of an esteemed, a reputable church are. The first one is this. They were one in heart and mind. We just read that in the passage. These were a group of people who decided to become unoffendable in contentious matters that were not the gospel. 
Acts 4.32 says, Now the entire group of the church, those who believed, were of one heart and one mind. How in the world can we be of one heart and one mind? What do you think of when you think of the heart of the church? When you think of the heart of what should drive the people of God? I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. And it's the ethic of love. It is the value of loving God supremely above all and loving each other's other as we would love ourselves. But here's how he defines it in those verses. He says in verse 4, love is patient. Love is relentless. Love suffers long. It hangs in there. He says love is kind. What is kindness? It's to be thoughtful or caring. Love does not envy. Love, a person driven by love, isn't sitting around seething with jealousy over what others have and that they don't have. It is not boastful and it is not arrogant. Well, it refuses to strut its stuff. It is not rude and it is not self-seeking. It's not aggressive. It doesn't blunder into people's business. It is not irritable. This is one I have to take to heart, right? Especially in the morning before I've had coffee. It means it's not cranky. Love cures us of a terminal grouchiness that can just seep into our souls. And it does not keep a record of wrongs. My favorite people are the people who do not spend all of their time filing offenses toward me. <laughs> people who keep short accounts, who are willing to come and talk to me and air things out and say, hey, our highest value here is reconciliation between a brother and a brother or a brother and a sister. But love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't sit there filing things, tallying the sins of others to use them later. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. A person who is driven by this ethic, a person who is driven by love, doesn't revel in the failure of rivals. Doesn't spike the football when other brothers or sisters fail. And love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does that mean? Love puts up with a lot. And if you're going to be a member of a local church, you're going to have to put up with a lot. Because there are people who are of a different mind than you on a lot of things. And there are people who are sitting right here who have habits and idiosyncratic behaviors that will drive you crazy or drive you nuts. But love endures. Love hopes for the best. Love believes the best about another person. And love, he says, never ends. Why? Because it is that one enduring virtue of the Christian faith, that one enduring quality of the Christian faith, though everything else passes away, love never does. And so this is the heart of the church. When it says that they were of one heart, they were of this heart, a heart of love toward God and toward one another. What about being of one mind? This does not mean that they agree on every single matter that they're a bunch of clones of the senior pastor. I would hate for you to be a clone of me, <laughs> right? I need your 
the way God has wired you. And the fact that you think differently on some things that are non-essential matters of the gospel helps me. It, that helps me. And the fact that I think differently than you do on debatable matters, that helps you. That's how we grow. That's how we sharpen one another. But we're to be of one mind about what? Well, I think of Ephesians 4, really the whole chapter there, but I'll just read verses 4 through 6. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. There is one Lord. Who is that? Jesus. There's one faith. There's only one Christian faith. There's not two. There's not a thousand. There's one. There's one baptism. One baptism that saves you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And when it comes to being of one mind, we're to be of one mind about this. We're to have the mind of Christ when it comes to the core essentials of the faith. These are things that we're of one mind about, united in those essential matters, charitable in those debatable matters. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 17, Jesus said in John chapter 17 that this is how the world would know that Jesus is Savior and Lord. This is how they would know the truth of this message that we preach, our unity. Our unity over what? Over this right here, this. So the first mark of an esteemed church, a reputable church in the community is that they are of one heart and one mind, not divided into factions over debatable matters. Number two, second mark, is that they have contagious generosity. Now we note here in the passage that Ryan just read, this is a church where the spirit of generosity to meeting the needs of the poor or meeting anyone's needs just permeates the group. It's just infectious. It says in verse 34, chapter 4, all the needs of the church community were met through voluntary giving. And what would they do? They would sell lands or properties. And who are these people selling lands and properties? Well, wealthy landowners, yes. But we learn at least one of them was a Levite. Uh, That, at the end of the chapter, there is a man named Barnabas or Joshua. And Barnabas was a Levite. And a Levite is not supposed to own any land. And so some of these people, and then we learn in chapter 6 that a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. So some of these wealthy guys, these aristocratic priests, have, are now in violation of Torah. So one of the ways in which they're repenting is to sell their land. And they're bringing the proceeds to the apostles' feet and laying them at the apostles' feet, which is uh, a sign of respect and honor and repentance. And so we're going to talk about a few uh, New Testament principles of generosity. First of all, you need to know what kind of culture this was. This was a strong group culture. You and I live in a weak group culture. So of all the cultures on the face of the earth, there are some, uh, like certain Latin America uh, cultures, and they have big families, and it seems like they all live in the same house or adjacent housing, and those are called strong group cultures. Same is true in the Middle East. The family, your family unit, defines you. And so while our culture is geared toward independence, theirs is geared toward interdependence. This is how a strong group culture works. 
So this is nothing for them to sell all their stuff, to pool it with the apostles and to say, hey, just distribute it as, as the need arises. This is easy for them because this is their culture. So a few principles of New Testament generosity here that I want to highlight is the first one is that tithing, giving a ten, tenth of your income is an Old Testament standard. So when we talk about tithing, that word just means tenth. And that's according to the Old Testament Mosaic law. And Christians in the New Testament are not under the Mosaic law. We have been set free from the Mosaic law. The scripture teaches this. Now, some would say, well, Jesus affirms this in Matthew 23, because what does he tell the scribes and the Pharisees? You tithe 10% of all your spices, and then he says, as well, you should. Now, because he was affirming it for them, is he affirming it for you? No. The context, he's talking to Jews who still live under the old covenant. In addition to that, we don't have any passages in the New Testament uh, where Jesus' statement there is interpreted for the whole church. So in the same way that you and I don't live under dietary laws of the Old Testament, we don't live under the circumcision uh, law of the Old Testament, and we don't live under the Sabbath law of the Old Testament, we don't live under the tithing law. We don't give because it's a law. In the New Testament, we give out of a spirit of cheerful generosity. This is what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, God loves a cheerful giver. He says, you should decide in your heart. You decide. You decide in your heart what is a generous gift toward the Lord. And then do that cheerfully. Do it with a smile on your face, with a skip in your step. And then he tells us that New Testament giving is not compulsory. He says, do not give under compulsion. Listen, if God has to choose between a person who is giving $10 freely and cheerfully and not under compulsion and a person who is giving a $100 bill that he has to pry that bill out of their white knuckles, God will take the 10 bucks. Because God wants the gift from the heart. You may not be tithing, but he'll take your tips. God will take whatever you give him if you do it with a cheerful heart because you've decided in your heart, this is what God wants me to give. So this is not a tax to fund a bureaucracy. It's a voluntary gift from the heart. And so a compulsory gift is a law by definition or a law, a legal statute to give is compulsory by definition. And Paul says, we don't give compulsory, compulsory out of compulsive. <laughs> Nailed it. See, young guys, that's what it looks like when you're a pro, not a Joe, right? Let's continue. <laughs> and next, New Testament giving is sacrificial. It's getting a little heavy in here anyway, right? <laughs> it's sacrificial. So, no, tithing is not a New Testament standard. It's not a legal standard. It's not a law that's compelling us to give. But every example of giving in the New Testament far exceeds 10%. I mean, the gifts that they're giving here in this chapter far exceed 10%. So that doesn't make us off the hook. What we do is we give as a spirit of generosity because the Holy Spirit is present in our midst. Now, I have to tell you, frankly, 
This is the most generous church I have ever been a part of. And I guarantee you all of my pastor friends on staff here would tell you that as well. This is the most generous church I've ever been a part of. And I love the generosity, the spirit, the Holy Spirit of generosity that is present in this body. It inspires me. I love it. Now, I could spend the next hour going through point by point how over the last three or four years, you've given to the gospel and funded the gospel and made an impact in this community and in the world. But I just want to give you a few and then one, one that's very specific by video. In 2019, you gave $8,000 towards marriage team's training and $1,500 in scholarships to couples to help in this church. That's awesome. Like we identified a need and said, man, we have a need. Couples are struggling and we want to give them mentoring and coaching. And you funded that. You did that. In 2020, you gave $15,700 to missionaries who are furthering the work of Christ in the world. Think about that. Our second biggest line item in our yearly budget is the funding of missionaries in the world. And you made it possible for them to fulfill the Great Commission calling cross-culturally. Amen. And thank you for that tepid clap. I appreciate that. (laughs) In 2020, you're not very generous with the clapping. I will say that. (laughs) No, just joking, y'all. In 2020, you gave $53,000 to our Mercy and our Benevolence Fund. 53 grand. Every, at the end of every Sunday. And this is a, let me tell you why this is a miracle. Because every month when we take that offering, we forget. Like we forget to mention it. So we have to put a slide up on the screen and you guys still give faithfully. That's money that we give to people who are struggling with their bills, struggling to pay their gas bills, struggling to pay their mortgage. They're struggling. And you met the needs of people. This is one of the most generous churches I've ever been a part of, if not the most generous church. And I want to play you a video by Pastor James Peterson who just wanted to send you a thank you for helping them uh, refurbish their church. Guys, cue that up. Go ahead and play that. Hi there, Christ Community Church. My name is James Peterson. I'm the pastor of Ryrie Chapel. And you guessed it, Ryrie, Idaho. I took the pastor about four and a half years ago. And when I first took the pastor, we had a problem with our building. The building itself out here in Ryrie is about 100 years old. And we had old concrete steps that went up about eight feet to the entryway, to the the front door. And these concrete steps were literally crumbling and falling apart. And so it put us in a situation where we had to do something for our building to be usable. And so we began to brainstorm and think of different uh, possibilities, have architects and engineers look at our building. And we finally settled on building a new entryway. However, this came with a daunting task of, as a small church, figuring out how to accomplish this goal. And so I made the decision to reach out to different churches, Christ Community Church being one of those churches. And your church reached out and financially helped us in a huge way. And so I just want to thank you all for that. Thank you for your support. And right now, I want to show you our new entry. 
And so, from all of us here at Ryrie Chapel, thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your generosity. And we, this has been a testament to the church, the universal church of Southeast Idaho. We love you. We're praying for you. And may the Lord bless you during this time and cause his face to shine upon you. Yeah, man. That, that was 20,000 bucks. That's because of generous people in our church who funded that. Folks, here's the deal. Thank you. Thank you for your generosity. And for those of you who have not experienced the joy of giving, listen, we don't need more money, but you need to give. As, as, as just an act of spiritual disciplines, this is one of the ways in which God grows us and we grow in the joy of membership. We grow in the joy of community. So thank you. Let's, let's do more this year, and I know you will. The third mark of an esteemed church is the fear of God. So there's this church that's just permeated with a spirit of generosity, giving to every need as it arises. They are of one heart and love, one mind in the gospel. And then verses, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept part of the proceeds uh, with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have planned this in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead of a coronary right there. And a great fear came on all who heard. And the young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. Three hours later, his wife comes in, Sapphira, same thing. Blam, you're down. Bye-bye. In verse 11, it says, the great, Then great fear came on the whole church and all of those who heard about these things. Repeating uh, the refrain from chapter five, or verse 5. So why does God do this? What, what, first of all, is Ananias and Sapphira, what are they doing to incur this immediate judgment? And two, what exactly is the judgment? Well, this is what they're doing. They're not scamming the church financially because no one knew other than Peter who prophesied to them, no one knew how much the land was actually sold for. And so they're not making interest on anything. So this is not a financial scam. This is an honor scam. This is a scam of seeking honor because in this culture, uh, they very much prized honor. And the way that you received honor is in public and you got that honor and that respect. Uh, you got that transferred to you by great acts of benefaction. So clearly the people who are selling lands and coming in and putting it at the, the apostles' feet, the proceeds, uh, some degree of honor is being transferred to those people. And these folks want to get in on that. They want to get in on this. So why does God drop this cat and his wife? Well, he does that because the church is brand new. The church is new. And this fledgling body of believers... If God were to allow this to go on and the word were to get out that you can come in and scam the church, 
honor would have been given to people, not to Christ. And so that's fundamentally what is going on. That's fundamentally what the, the judgment is here. And then what is the result? Verses 5 and 11, great fear seizes the church and comes upon the people. Such, such that no one dared join their ranks casually. Uh, wow, there's a statement. No one dared join the church and just showed up and said, yeah, I, I kind of attend that church. Nope. Especially if you were a scammer or a schemer. The message, the word on the street was, don't join that church. Don't go to that one. And so we should live in the church with a holy fear. Now, let me tell you, the impulse of the church is love, preeminently. Love, first and foremost, is our priority. But the fear of God is the flip side of that coin. You and I serve a God who loves us beyond words, beyond description. And a God who is holy and awesome and to be feared because he is awesome. The same fire that warms you can burn your house down. The same snow on a mountainside that you play in can avalanche and bear you. So you and I, when we come into God's presence, we come with a holy reverence and we don't treat the church uh, as some unholy thing. But recently, uh, I got a news report uh, that was sent to me by a friend and it's gone out to a lot of people and a lot of people have seen it. But it's a report on the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. How many of you are familiar with his ministry? So quite a number of you. Uh, Ravi, for the last 35 years, has been one of the preeminent apologists of the Christian faith. Probably the third most recognized apologist in the Christian faith. And he has been a powerful advocate. His speaking is powerful. Uh, and his ability to go into a university campus is, uh, and, and have a discussion with Muslims who are asking him questions or atheists who are pelting him with questions has been legendary. And he's been a ministry that I have followed for a number of years. As a matter of fact, he got brain cancer last year, suddenly, just out of the blue. And just like that, he was gone. And I listened to his funeral in my backyard while I was working in my backyard late last summer. And people just had glowing, wonderful things to say about his Christian character. But it turns out that there were some allegations from multiple independent witnesses and sources, for those of you who are aware of this, of sexual misconduct. After the report came out, which is an independent report where they investigated every single one of them that they could find, the report was long and it turned my stomach, every line of it. Because it turns out that Ravi, in addition to cultivating an image of being this giant of the Christian faith and apologetics, was also building a life that was based on sexual predation. Like he was a sexual predator for women and young women. And it was horrible. And I got through the end of it, I was crushed. I know that many of you were as well. Because he has been one of our heroes of the faith. And, it, and I was just reminded of a couple of things. One, don't follow men, follow Jesus. And two, there's a difference between dealing or struggling with the sin in, area of sin in your life. You have those areas. I have those areas. We keep each other accountable as much as we can. But there's a difference between that and building, living, constructing a different life 
away from the gospel, a life does, that does not honor the gospel and the mission of Christ. And the last thought I had was Romans 3.18. After Paul goes through this list and he quotes a psalm talking about how sinful humanity is, he says, this is his conclusion, there is no fear of God at all in their eyes. None. And that's what I thought about Ravi. I thought, I don't know how it's possible to build two lives like this simultaneously unless you just have no fear that you're going to answer to God when it's all said and done. And I promise you, he will. And so will you. And so will I. We will answer to God for the lives that we have lived in this body. And that is coming according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so... We are to live in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of God keeps us. It constrains us. It trains us. And it keeps us in accountable relationships. And the fourth mark of an esteemed church is the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, right after that, here's what I want you to notice. The Spirit is unleashed in power. So this means that not even scandal in the church can stop the gospel. The scandal cannot stop the church of Jesus and the gospel. Look at verse 12. It says, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's colonnade, and no one else dared join them, not the scammers at least, but the people spoke well of them. As a result, they would carry the sick out onto the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem. And they were bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Now we see that with the apostles, the same ministry that Jesus performed is carried through in their ministry. And I want to tell you this. We don't have apostles, not like this, in our culture today. There aren't any apostles, not like this, in the church today. Now, God does have apostolic missionaries, and he does have apostolic evangelists, and God has prophets, and God has preachers, and pastors, and teachers. All of those things are still in the church today, but I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, we don't have apostles like this. How do we know? Well, number one, in in the Bible, we see that other than Jesus and the apostles, no one else has legislative miracle working power. Nobody just walks around with their shadow falling on people Honestly, I wish that would happen when you come to me at the end of the service for prayer, but it just won't. It's not going to. I don't have that gift. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't do miracles. What Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that he gives people the gifts of miracles. He doesn't say he gives people the gift of working miracles. He says he gives the church miracles. God still answers prayer. God still provides for your finances. God will still heal your body. If you come up here at the end of the service and I pray for you, I'm not going to pray some waffling, mealy mouth prayer. I'm going to ask Jesus to heal you supernaturally and extra naturally, whatever it takes. My favorite miracle in the New Testament is Jesus picking up some mud out of the ground and spitting in it and rubbing that slimy concoction on some blind guy's eyes. You and I, as Westerners, we read that and we go, what is he doing that for? Well, that was a rabbinic medicinal aid. 
That was a, one, what was considered in the rabbinic literature to be a medicinal aid. Jesus is using what is available, and then it is being suffused and infused with the power of God. I think that's how God most often does it today. God uses your doctors, and he uses good medicine, and he uses the faithful. God works through things. He works through the natural world. So he will perform a supernatural miracle for you, and sometimes an extra natural miracle for you. And God still does this. And so we should expect to minister in the power of the Spirit. Listen, you and I cannot make a cup of coffee apart from the enabling presence of God. Now you can. Any person could walk in the kitchen and just make a cup of coffee, but every single thing we do in this church needs to be Spirit-led and Spirit-empowered by the Spirit-filled church. Everything we do is surrendered to Christ. The fifth mark of an esteemed church is healthy church growth. Verse 14, well, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes, actually, of both men and women. And there are people that we don't, listen to me, hear me carefully, there are people that we don't want here. There's some people I don't want here. There are some people who aren't welcome in this church. Anyone who would seek to exploit the body of Christ for their own financial gain or their own personal honor, don't want you here. I mean, I don't think God is going to Ananias and fire you, but I, I think you should find another church. In fact, don't find any church. Repent in this church and become a real Christian. So the church is committed to church growth, but not at all costs. Sometimes the cost to the body is too much. So I'm going to give you some principles of healthy church growth, and here they are. What is a healthy church? What is healthy church growth? The first principle is this. Healthy churches grow. Healthy churches grow. This is clearly taught in the passage. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts is punctuated several times by saying, and the church grew in numbers. It did. It grew spiritually and it grew numerically. This is biblical and it's healthy. Anything that is healthy will grow to its potential. And the potential of the church international. The potential of the church worldwide is unlimited. It's limitless. Come one, come all. Come whosoever will, you're welcome into the body of Christ. We want to win, as Paul said to the Corinthians, as many as possible. By all means possible. So healthy churches grow. Second principle, healthy churches grow. But not all growing churches are healthy. Not every church that is growing is healthy. There's a such thing as being big and out of shape. Uh, I watched a, an episode of the TV show, My 600-Pound Life. Have you seen that? Well, don't watch that show. I was just scanning, and I saw that, and I was, I was like, wow, now there's an experience. So I watched one episode, and I was going to be really angry if they were making fun of those people, and they weren't. They were trying to help them. But what they had to do is they had to go into the home and sort of help these people who had let their lives, things had gotten out of hand. So much so that they had to cut the doors open and cut the wall open to get these people out of their rooms because they could no longer, they were so large that they couldn't get out of their bedrooms. I mean, think about that. Uh, growth, yes. Health, no. You, you could be big and unhealthy. And there are some churches that are big for the wrong reasons. 
And this is why we put an emphasis on our mission here, which is to gather disciples to worship in spirit and in truth, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then to go out into the world. You are the best evangelism program that God ever thought of. And you're our best program too. So we want to grow for the right reasons. And we want to be a healthy church, not just a growing church. And healthy churches seek to grow deep and wide. Well, it's not either or. That's a false choice. That's a false dilemma choice. I don't have to choose between growing deep, being the deep church. Now, I want you to be deep. I want this to be the most biblically, theologically literate congregation in this town. For sure. Welcome. That's my goal for you. I want you to be the smartest Christian when it comes to the Bible and when it comes to theology that you can possibly be short of a PhD. Right? I want you to be that, but I also, also want you to be a, a spirit-filled love machine. I want you to love people into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so we don't have to choose between growing deep and growing wide. We can do both. And usually when a congregation grows in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, they will want to go and read some more. The healthy churches can experience needed pruning. There is nothing whatsoever unhealthy about a season of intentional decline. A season in which people who are here to exploit the body or are here for false motives and self-honor leave. And usually, the way that happens is through crisis. Crisis will surface a couple of things. It will surface the non-negotiables, and it will surface your idols. So it will surface the things that for you, though they are not the gospel, they're debated matters. You say in your mind, I'm, I can't budge on this. And so if the church is not teaching this, my pet doctrine, my favorite thing, then uh, I'm out of here. And that's what people do. So a crisis will surface the things that are non-negotiables for you. The crisis will also surface things that are idols for you. Things that for you have become now as important as the gospel itself. And you have risen or raised to that bar. And so healthy churches experience needed pruning. Not all loss is unhealthy. And healthy churches break bread and baptize new believers. This one seems like a duh moment here, but we have to point this out. We are called to commune with God around the table. And so every, I look forward, every Month, every month, we gather around the table, the Lord's table, to commemorate and celebrate a death. We commemorate his death and we celebrate the effects of what his death accomplishes for us, which is new life for us. And then baptism. Listen, if you're a Christian, as Pat said in the video, if you're a Christian and you're here today and you have not been baptized in water, you need to be. Not for salvation, but for identification. Because in baptism, when you go down and you come up in the congregation, that's your way of declaring, this is my body. I'm a part of this body. I identify with the body of Christ. So these are the marks of, of healthy churches. So let's recap by way of application. First application point I want to give you is this. Let's become unoffendable. Not easily triggered by matters of preference. Let's be of one heart, which is the love of Jesus for each other, and of one mind, which is the gospel of Jesus uncompromisingly. And let's allow our examples, number two, of generosity to go viral. 
For those of you who have not experienced the joy of giving, again, we don't need more of your money. But you and I as believers need to give so that God can challenge the idols in our checkbook. So that God can grow us and challenge us as well. And let's be reminded, number three, of the fear of the Lord. Let's never forget that we are here to lift praises to an awesome, mighty God, the God of heaven. Let's not forget that. And number four, let's rely through prayer on God's empowering presence. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're back there with little babies wiping butts. Whatever it is, or pouring coffee, whatever it is, God has called all of us in the power of the Spirit to do His work. And fifthly, let's continue to make disciples who gather to worship, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, and go out into the world to grow the church in a healthy, numerically healthy way. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Glad you agree. Father in heaven, we just want to come before you and just tell you how thankful we are for your word. Your word has a transforming impact on our minds and the way we think. We're so glad for that. Thank you for giving us this inspired word. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, the Savior and Lord, you could do it right now by just making a decision to believe. You believe in Christ and you surrender and repent of your sins and you can do that right now. Would you make that decision? Don't live another day before you have done it. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you feel challenged by the message to say, yes, that's me. I want to be of one heart and one mind. I want to have a heart that is filled with a spirit of generosity. I want to have a heart to see the church grow deep and wide and I want, to have a, I want to have a heart that follows Jesus in every way would you just commit your heart to that right now in Jesus mighty name Amen